Okay, friends, let's do this. We're back into it after a couple weeks off. Valerie and Kate, can I mention? No, that's okay. That's okay. Um, we always start by reviewing names. So, senior Gentry, do you mind? I'm Greta. with the same title, Faith, covering different aspects about faith. These are, um, this is what Christians believe about virtues. Book three is all about Christian behavior, Christian virtues. So we're getting into these today. Um, let's commit to, especially as we get into discussion, um, these four agreements. Understand that people will have different opinions and respect that. That is okay. It is okay for us to have different views and to express them. And we're going we're gonna to respect each other as we do. Um, please share your opinions and ideas. Discussions don't go very far if nobody shares. But please also allow others to share their opinions and ideas. Don't dominate the conversation. And respect the pause. If there's ever some dead silence where we just need to let our wheels turn, we're going to respect the pause. Do we all agree to engage respectfully? Yes. 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 Thank you very much. Okay. So um, we are going to start. Uh, you've got your your survey sheets here. Um, using a check mark or an X, please indicate where you stand in your agreement or disagreement with the statements I put up on the screen. We will then shuffle these survey sheets and we'll pass them out later so we can all see where each other stands. But there's anonymity. Statement one: Love, in the Christian sense, does not mean an emotion. Love is not a state of the feelings, but of the will. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? Love is not a state of the feelings, but of the will. It's something we decide to do with our actions. Okay, statement two. When you behave as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. By the same token, if you hurt someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. Do you agree or disagree? Statement three. Most people, if they really look into their hearts, will see that they want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. So most of us, if we're honest, sense a desire for something more. We can't really address that with anything in this world. Okay, statement four is related. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. 
Statement five, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Okay, statement six, no belief, no belief will automatically remain alive in the mind unless it is fed and nurtured. That might be your belief in nutrition, your belief in music as a healing thing, belief in Christianity, belief in atheism. No belief can survive unless it's nurtured. Okay, statement seven, no person knows just how bad they are until they have tried very hard to be good. Okay, statement eight. God doesn't care about our faith. The only thing God cares about is our good actions. Do you agree or disagree? Last one, statement nine. God doesn't care about our actions. The only thing God cares about is our faith. Do you agree or disagree? Okay, when you're done, I will take them and then we'll mix them up. So when you pass these back out later, We'll have someone in the room, but you won't necessarily know who. You may get your own, just stay quiet about it, no one will know. So we'll be able to see each other's opinions. Okay, so um, two weeks ago, let's remember where we left off. Um, you guys had the excellent Pastor Myers as your teacher. Um, I hope that went well. This was where, this was kind of the main point of one of the chapters that he was talking about. Um, this idea that when the Bible says love your neighbor, it doesn't necessarily mean that you like them. When the Bible says forgive someone else, it doesn't mean that you necessarily decide that the awful things they did don't matter. Okay? When the Bible says love your neighbor, and this is actually going to come up again today, it means you take care of your neighbor in the same way that you take care of yourself. You feed yourself, you take care of yourself, even on days when you don't particularly like yourself. Okay? And so love your neighbor um, means that, that you, can, you can want good for them even while hating the actions that they may have done, okay? Um, and we also talked about pride, which is this idea that he says the essential vice, the sin, which is at the root of every other sin, is pride. Pride is what makes us say, I've got this. I know best. I can run my own life. I can decide what to do about my decisions. It's the sin that prevents us from looking to God, which means that every other sin comes out of that belief. I've got this. I don't need to look to God about this. Okay? And he says it's the sin that made the devil. Okay, so that's where we left off. So today we're getting into charity. Now, charity in the 40s, when this book was written, similar to now, is usually just associated with giving money. Right? When we think of charity, we think of giving money. He says, well, that, that is sort of the most visible out 
coming, like out, outcome of, of this idea. And he said, but actually charity used to and still does mean something much bigger. It actually means love in the Christian sense. Okay, It means showing love to others. And he says, and in that way, um, it's we're not talking about feelings. We're talking about the will. Okay, We're talking about the decision to be Christ's hand and hands and feet in the world. Okay? So um, he says, um, he says, now listen, sometimes we get hung up on this idea that we need to, that we need, when we love our neighbor, we really need to like them. We need to feel affection for them. He says, no, you don't. He says, act as if you love them. We can think of the of ladle, right? If any of you, I know some of you are very involved with ladle, um, but if you are involved in the charity, okay, those folks at ladle are not deciding who their favorites are. Okay? Unless maybe they're kind of immature in their service. They're going to treat everybody who shows up, all these homeless folks who show up, with dignity, with care. They're going to try to meet their needs. Okay, That is demonstrating love and charity in a way that is related to their will, not their affections. Okay, So he says, don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And he says, and when you do that, Unless you're doing it for like self-gratification because you want them to be like in your debt. Like if you're doing it for selfish reasons, then this isn't going to go right. He says, but if you are just trying to care for someone else because they are a human being, you are actually going to feel more affection for those people. Have you guys ever experienced this? Right? When you, um, the, like, you know, when we have, when we have participated at Ladle, um, the homeless people on the street become less scary they become less um like like people i want to be away from and it's and you and you feel more compassion for them i want to let there's a meal i want to let them know there are there's there are people that will help them i want to care for these people okay i think this is a secret to parenting too (laughs) because when children are are brand new um they're really not very likable all they do is cry they spit up they're kind of cute which is helpful Okay, and C.S. Lewis says, like, it's a good idea to encourage your affections. It makes charity easier. But I think part of the parental love that comes about is just because we are caring for them nonstop. Okay? Now he says, now, um, be on guard because this same concept works in reverse. Have any of you guys heard about that Stanford experiment of the prison guards? Do you know this experiment? They, um, it was an experiment conducted at Stanford. Two groups of people randomly assigned... They had some college kids pretending to be prisoners and some college kids pretending to be guards. And they gave the guards total authority to keep the prisoners um, under control. The guards kind of got power hungry and were, were very brutal and ruthless to the prisoners. And um, it, it intensified this dislike, even though it was completely random. Even though the guards had done nothing to deserve their position of authority, and the prisoners had done nothing to, to deserve that distinction, it was totally random. These feelings were inflamed, okay? If you dislike someone, and you start gossiping about them, or you put them down, or, you're, or you make a snide remark, you will actually intensify your feelings of dislike, okay? So um, this is, and this is super, I think this is really important in terms of relationships, because if we, you know, if we're in a bad spot with our spouse and we're feeding our minds with thoughts about, um, this person is such a jerk, they're so selfish, right? If we're telling ourselves that, it becomes so much harder to engage with them in love versus if you just act 
like you love them, um, it, it changes things. Okay, that's true for any for any close relationship. So, and he says, and this is this is super important because um, this kind of gets into the sermon that we talked about this morning. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. Remember, we are going into eternity. We are on an eternal trajectory. He says, the smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point, okay? This is the bridge from Saving Private Ryan that they're defending, right? They're trying to like, and they end up blowing it up at the end, like prevent, I'm sorry, plot spoiler. Um, okay, but um, it's the strategic point, okay? If you choose to do good today, you are capturing the strategic point from which a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. And apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today, going back to the sermon, is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible, okay? So the small stuff has infinite implications, okay? So, and he says, and by the way, this, this, gets into, this gets into our relationship with God, too. He said, some people just don't feel those warm, fuzzy feelings of affection towards God. And he says, um, you know, people are often worried. They're often told they ought to love God, and they can't find such any feelings in themselves. What are they to do? The answer is the same as before. Act as if you did. Don't just sit there trying to manufacture feelings. Ask yourself, if I were sure that I loved God, what would I do? When you have found the answer, go and do it. We found out that Mother Teresa was kind of an amazing example of this after her death when her writings, some of her personal writings were found. And it was just, people realized that she had felt tremendous doubt and she'd often felt very distant from God every day of her life. She acted with her will in ways that reflected a love and trust in God, even though her, her emotions weren't always there. Okay, so he really emphasizes this idea that love is an affair of the will. That's why vows matter in marriage. It's a commitment to acting in a certain way. So then we get into hope. Now, I think this is super interesting. I've been thinking about this one all week long because he defines hope not as, when I say, I hope you have a good day, I hope you start feeling better, okay? That is not the kind of hope that he talks about here. He says, hope isn't optimism. It's not wishful thinking. It is a continual looking forward to the eternal world, okay? Hope in the Christian sense means eternity. It means Christ's resurrection. It means eternity with God. It means heaven, okay? That's what we talk about when we talk about hope. I know some friends who are going through awful, awful, awful things. I don't understand why. And when they tell me that they don't know if they should continue hoping at all, this is kind of the only hope that is realistic to offer them because I don't know if their lives will get any better. But I do know that they can hope in the, in the eternal world. Okay? Um, so he says, now, just because we're thinking about heaven, just because Christians are, are, are told to hope as a, as a virtue and practice hope, that doesn't mean that we neglect this world. Okay? Just because we say, ah, I'm going to be in heaven one day, it doesn't matter if I drive a gas-guzzling SUV and, like, litter. Like, this world doesn't even matter. Heaven is what matters. Okay? He says, no, 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 no. He says, actually, the most effective Christians are the ones that are thinking about heaven a lot, and it transforms their behavior in today's world. Okay? So he says, this world still matters. 
Um, now he says, how do we know that we're meant for another world? Okay, any, any John Mayer fans in here? No? Oh, Apollo is John Mayer. Well, okay, John Mayer, um, not, not, I understand he's maybe not the nicest guy. I do really like his music. He's got an old song where he, it's called Something's Missing. And at one point in the song, he's like, friends, check. Um, you know, money, check. Uh, well, I'm, I'm well-dressed. I've got the opposite sex, check, 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 check. Something's missing. And the chorus is, something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing, and I don't know what it is at all. Okay? C.S. Lewis makes the point that most people, if you look inside, you sense that you are hungry and lonely for something beyond what you are able to access in this world. Okay? And so what do we do when our longings can't be met? He says there's a couple different ways that people handle this, okay? So uh, two wrong ways, one right way. He says way number one that people try to handle this desire for something more is he calls it the fool's way. I would call it the materialism's answer, okay? Which is um, you put the blame on the things themselves, okay? If I'm not happy in my marriage, i got to get a better spouse. If I'm not happy with my job, i got to get a better job. Uh, if I'm not happy with my stuff, then I need more money to get more stuff, okay? And every time you get that new thing, you're like, nah, I'm still, still feeling dissatisfied. Got to go find something else, okay? This is kind of what our world lives for, right? He calls it very dismissively the fool's way. He says option two, the way of the disillusioned, sensible man, i.e. cynicism, okay? You get to a point where you're just like, wow, I am dissatisfied with my life. Okay, it is what it is. This is what, this is all that I can expect. I'm just going to lower my expectations and tell myself that this is good enough. Okay? Now he says, actually, that, that is sensible. That's probably the better way to live if there's nothing more. But if there is something more, don't you want to train your faculties within you to hope? for that, okay? And so the third way is what he calls the Christian way. He says, listen, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. He said, I get hungry. Well, there is such a thing as food. I have sexual desires. Well, there is such a thing as sex, okay? He says, now if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, okay? So that's how we can trust that there is heaven. Now he says, now listen, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, okay? These earthly blessings can point us towards heaven. He says, but on the other hand, I must be careful never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a Okay? Love is often what our world tells us to live for. Okay? Just that passionate romance. And he says, no, that's just, a, that's just an imitation of, what's, of what you're really meant for. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, one which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Okay? Regardless of what comes, 
Now this leads us into faith, okay? Because what do we do when life is so hard? When the only thing that you feel like you have left to hope in or hope for is that eternal dwelling place because this life is just so brutal. He says, well, that's when, that's when it's time to talk about faith, okay? Now he says, now on the one hand, faith just Sometimes people just say, it's just belief. Well, that happened to be a virtue, okay? You either believe something or you don't. You either determine that it's true because it seems reasonable and probable, or you think it's not true. He says, well, okay, that's, that's a start. He says, but faith, in the, as, as we mean it in a virtue, means nurturing belief in spite of your changing moods, okay? So he says, um, the battle is between faith and reason, on one side, and emotion and imagination on the other. Because when you think of it, you'll see lots of instances of this. A man knows on perfectly good evidence that a pretty girl of his acquaintance is a liar and cannot keep a secret and ought not to be trusted. Okay, my example is Samson and Delilah. Okay, in the Bible story, Delilah, Delilah, she was so foxy. Samson just couldn't help himself. He got together with her over and over and over again, even though every time... She was like, what's the secret to your strength? And he would tell her something made up. You gotta tie me with seven ropes. And then he falls asleep. She binds him with seven ropes. And he wakes up and he breaks them because it was a lie, okay? But oh, Samson, buddy, she is trying to get you to give up the secret of your strength. Like, I always read the story and I'm like, what are you thinking, okay? But listen, this is what C.S. Lewis says. He, he, oh, she's so foxy. So he starts thinking, perhaps she'll be different this time. And once more makes a fool of himself and tells her something he ought not to have told her. His senses and emotions have destroyed his faith in what he really knows to be true. Right? Okay? So we, so our emotions lead us into making dumb decisions all the time. We know this. Okay? Um, so also, uh, like our fears sometimes go there. Right? Like, like a fear of flying. I know that I probably will be fine, but oh my gosh, I'm freaking out. Okay? So he says faith is holding on to something to your, to, it's holding on to your reason in spite of your emotions. Okay, so when might faith be shaken? Okay, um, he says, well, this happens uh, when there's bad news or you're in trouble or you're living among a lot of other people who don't believe it. And all at once his emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief. Okay, we see this especially when we go through tragedy. How could God do this? Maybe God isn't even real. I don't know. Okay. Our faith gets a blitz of raw emotion and painful emotion. Okay, He says it also happens um, in those moments when it would be really convenient if Christianity weren't true. Okay, um, When, you know, those early years in college when, man, wouldn't it be great if, like, God could just, like, turn a blind eye for the next couple years so I could live however I want. I'm just going to pretend like that's true. Okay? Where everybody around you is making... Um, is making abandoning God look really attractive. Okay? That's, that's a moment when it's really tempting to give up our faith. Okay? Or sometimes just a mere mood rises up against it. So he says, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Okay? And he says, you gotta you gotta train that. Yes, Kate. I think too it's possible if your life is going so well. Ah, totally. And you can sort of start to feel like, well, I'm doing Yeah. I don't need that God because, which in my life, I have, yeah, I'm not talking about necessarily 
get complacent in our faith when we're too comfortable, when things are going, when they're so easy and they're going so well. Great, great point. So he says, um, you've got to feed it. You've got to nurture this belief, okay? Um, number one, recognize that your moods change, okay? He says there's going to be seasons of doubt when Christianity really doesn't feel like something that is easy to feel emotionally. Okay, your moods are going to change. But he says, number two, if your reason has accepted Christianity, if at some point in your life you claim this as something you believe to be true, then you've got to keep the doctrines of the faith before you. Okay? This is why we read our Bible. This is why we pray. This is why we go to church. So that we can train the virtue of faith and keep it before us. So that when we are in those moods, where faith is not something we want to hold on to, there are supports, okay? We have been feeding it. There is, there is some margin there. Um, he says, neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. I love that we do liturgy in our church because I feel like we're feeding um, these really important tenets of our faith with, with the confessions and with the reassurance of pardon. Okay, go ahead. Just briefly, I, I think also this is, this is kind of like the greatest muscle in the world. Totally. You must go Christian and you practice this yeah. in your head, yeah. in your heart, so that it's not forgotten. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, Pastor Richard Dahlstrom in Seattle, talked about, he's like, there are a lot of mornings when I don't feel like reading my Bible, or when reading my Bible is boring. He's like, that's, you know, I'm a pastor, that still happens to me. There are times when I read my Bible and it feels boring. It doesn't matter. Those are seeds that go into the soil of my soul. And then when, when the storm comes, right, and there's rain pouring down, what happens to those seeds? They germinate, okay? They start to sprout. So there, there's important groundwork being laid, the muscle memory that you talked about, that these, these disciplines nurture in us, okay? He says most people, if you talk to them, most people who have, who have lost their faith, they didn't lose it in one big moment. Most of them just kind of drifted away because they weren't nurturing this belief. Um, okay, and so then he gets into, um, so then he says, now, uh, so now once the last thing that you do, you recognize that your moves change, you keep its doctrines in front of you, and then, and then finally, you gotta actually make some serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues. I want to tell a story about this. Um, when I was heading into 2021, I always like to choose a word for, for the new year. And I kind of like return to that word throughout the year. And so for 2021, I recognized that I spend a lot of time in my life thinking about my own greatness. Um, I really liked the idea of being important and famous. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an Oscar-winning actress. Um, when I played guitar for a while, I was like, well, I will win Grammys eventually. And you know that I'm doing writing, like the idea of, oh, well, I, at some point I will probably get a Pulitzer. Like, it's, I mean, seriously, it's embarrassing how often my mind goes to um, wanting to be seen as important, okay? And I finally recognized this. 
And I was like, man, for all the time I spend thinking about my greatness, I spend very little time thinking about my goodness. I'm often selfish um, with my children. I get angry with my children and irritable with them. I'm selfish with Jeff. Like, maybe for 2021, I'm going to just set greatness aside and I'm going to focus on goodness instead. I was like, wow, that sounds like a really holy plan. Good job, self. And so, so I wrote goodness down in my journal. And then every day, for the first week, I, like, picked a virtue that I was going to work on. And so, like, I think the first day I was like, I'm going to be really selfless today. I'm going to give generously, especially to my husband. And that day, as I was trying to be good, I failed epically. It was, like, one of the most embarrassingly epic failures of being selfless. I was super selfish. And then the next day I was like, well, today I'm going to be patient, okay? Well, good luck, you know, you can guess what happened, right? Like, horrible, horrible patience. And what's funny is that C.S. Lewis is like, um, try it for more than a week. A week is not enough time. For me, six days was enough time because it was every day was such a failure. And then January 6th of 2021 happened, which was the storming of the Capitol. And I was like, it's all going to hell. Like, everything's going to hell, including me. Um, and it was very, very depressing because I finally, I, w- I finally tried really, really hard to be good. Okay. I had, I mean, I lived a, a pretty moral life by the worldly standards. Okay, but once I tried actually to deal with my sin, it was this horrible realization of my ineptitude at moral virtue. But what came out of that was this realization that only God is great. Only God is good. The only thing I can do is receive his grace and be thankful. And it was this amazing sigh of relief that like, well, instead of working on 20 on goodness every day, feverishly for for all of 2021, all I can really do is wake up and say, God, thank you for your grace. I'm going to do my best to live this day for you. I'm going to fail. I'm going to do my best because I love you. That was all I could do. And so C.S. Lewis talks about this in this, at the end of this chapter and the next one, and that there's so much grace in these two chapters. He says, um, bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. So, and the main thing that we learn from a serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues is that we fail. If there was any idea that God had set us a sort of exam, he says, sometimes we think this is what Christianity is about. God is like, can you do all my things? And we're like, I'm going to try. And then he's like, well, you're going to fail. Like, okay, I guess he needed us to rescue you, okay? That's kind of the idea that some of us, and he's like, no, 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 no. God is not giving, if there was an idea that God had set us a sort of exam, and that we might get good marks by deserving them, uh-uh, that has to be wiped out, okay? If there was any idea of a sort of bargain, hey, God, I'm going to be really good, so you bless me, okay? He says, if there was any idea that we could perform our side of the contract and thus put God in our debt, so that it was up to him in your justice to perform his side. I'm going to do my part. You do your part, God. That has to be wiped out. Okay? One of the very things Christianity was designed to do was blow this idea to bits. God has been waiting for the moment at which you discover there is no question of earning a pass mark in this exam or putting him in your debt. Okay? When a man has made these two discoveries, God can really get to work. You can't be good. And number two... Anything that you are capable of, um, 
is a gift from God. He gives the example of, of a kid going to the parent and being like, can I have six pence to buy you a birthday present? Okay, that's what our good acts are like to God. Okay, can I, can I, can I borrow some money from you to get you a, a present, God? And then you give, you know, my girls' homemade presents are kind of ridiculous, but I love them, right? He says, everything you have is a gift from God. You can't give him anything that he's, that he's already given you. All you can do is live in thanks. So then we get into faith in the second concept. Um, any fans of The Office? Okay, there's this episode where Michael Scott, the boss, realizes that he's bankrupt. And they tell him, you got to declare bankruptcy. And so he comes out into the office and he says loudly, I declare bankruptcy. And they're like, that's not, you can't just say that you're bankrupt. And he said, I didn't just say it, I declared it. Okay, but, um, but so, so C.S. Lewis says, this is kind of where it starts. And I love, this was the point of Jeff Sermon did it too. Again, the, the, the Hel- 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 Helvetic Confession, am I saying that right? The confession Heidelberg. that we all said. What is it? Heidelberg. Heidelberg, thank you, thank you. Um, begins with acknowledging your bankruptcy, okay? Um, so he says, faith in this second fuller sense arises after a person has tried their level best to practice the Christian virtues and found that he fails and seen that even if he could be good, he would only be giving back to God what was already God's own, okay? And he says, we, we do a lot of lip service with this, okay? I know I'm a sinner. And if, like Ramona, my six-year-old, knows this, right? She can, say, she can say these ideas. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need to save her, okay? But until you experience it, and that experience that I had, that New Year's resolution, I think for me was the first time that I really experienced it, and I'm well into my 30s, okay? Um, that's, you know, that's when you finally get it. Um, and he says, remember... God doesn't care so much about our, our, our actions. Not exactly. He says what God really cares about is that we should be creatures of a certain kind or quality. The kind of creatures that he intended us to be. Creatures related to himself in a certain way. Okay? As long as a man is thinking of God as an examiner who has set him a sort of paper to do. Okay? You are not in the right relation to God. You misunderstand what you are and what God is is okay instead he says um, the vital moment uh, comes when where's the vital moment all of this yeah you must do this God I can't all this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say you must do this I can't um, here are the three things that we talked about in the Heidelberg confession uh, in no wait where is it? One, two, three. Ah, okay. A serious moral effort is the only thing that will bring you to the point where you throw up the sponge. Can't do it, God. Faith in Christ is the only thing to save you from despair at that point. And out of that faith in him comes this desire to live in trust with him. Okay? And I love this. He says, but you're, you're going to do that in a different way. You're going to do it in a less worried way in a less hurried way. You're going to feel less stressed out about obeying God. You're going to feel a little bit more like, man, okay, I'm going to accept this grace. I'm going to do my best to live for you. That's what it means to put all your trust in Christ. I can't do it. Only you can. Okay? It is the change from being confident about our own efforts to the state in which we despair of doing anything for ourselves and we just leave it to God. Okay? He says, trust in this. 
Trust that Christ will somehow share with you his own perfect obedience. Trust that Christ can and will make you more like himself. Trust that God makes you his own child. Trust that all you have done and can do is nothing. Okay? That's what it means to truly put your faith in Christ and to live into that. Um, and then he says, now this, this is confusing, okay? Um, he says, the Bible kind of puts this all together when it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which looks as if everything depended on us. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But the second half goes on, for it is God who works in you, which looks as if God does everything and we do nothing. And he says, yeah, this, it, it's, we try to, this is confusing. He says, we're trying to understand and to separate into watertight compartments what exactly God does and what man does. When God and man are working together, we, we begin by thinking it's like two men working together. Okay, you did this bit. I did that. He says, no, no, no. This way of thinking breaks down. God isn't like that. He's inside you as well as outside you. Even if we could understand who did what, I don't think human language could properly express it. Okay? Um, there, he, he ends this chapter by saying, he describes this, this place where Christians have kind of gotten almost beyond the rules of morality. And he says, everyone there is filled full with what we should call goodness as a mirror is filled with light. In my own um, prayer life, uh, God has given me this idea of the fields of grace. Um, and what I imagine, and I, I go from the tower of shoulds, trying to be everything I'm supposed to be, and then that falls apart because I can't do it. And then Jesus takes me on a boat into this ocean where I'm just learning what it means to live into his grace, and then he delivers me to the fields of grace. And in the fields of grace, Jesus is the sun, super, super bright, and, and everybody there casts these really clear shadows on the ground because you're facing Christ, and your shadows are your sin. So everybody sees really, really clearly everybody else's sin. But you know what that means? It means that when we encounter each other, we, we see it and we're like, oh my gosh, me too. Oh, aren't you glad that we're saved? Aren't you glad that we have Jesus? Oh my gosh, me too. And here we are. There's so much freedom. There's so much peace when we just allow ourselves to be forgiven and we recognize that he's going to do all of it. And he does. And out of that thankfulness, we live into a more righteous life, okay? He says, he says, your actions do matter, okay? We can't say only faith matters. We can't say only good acts matter. That's not what it means, okay? Um, a, trusting him means, of course, trying to do all that he says. That's what, trusting a person means you take their advice, but you do it in a new way, a less worried way, Okay? So that ends book three. In our final sessions, we're going to get into book four. But let's go ahead and discuss this. Um, Rachel, do you mind passing those out? And I'm going to get us back to the slides when we get into our discussion questions. Okay, we're going to start with this first statement. So on this side, we have this, this side is agree, okay? And this side is disagree. And so if your page tells you that your person agreed, you're going to go up here. And if your page says that you disagreed, you're going to go up here. So statement one, love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It is not a state of the feelings, but of the will. 
What is love in the Christian sense? This is agree. This is disagree. Oh, I love when we disagree because it means there's good discussion. Why would someone agree with this? Why would someone disagree with this? What is love in the Christian sense? Remember, you all agree. You would share your opinion. You said so. Are we supposed to? Go for it. Go for it. I think we agree because uh, the fact that we are supposed to love our enemies. Yeah. How do you love your enemies other than putting your will and your action into those? And not just a feeling. Not just a feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. John, why would someone agree or disagree? Um, now, this individual put strongly disagree. Okay. Am I supposed to comment from that angle, or if I think it's... You can choose. Agree? You can choose. You can speculate why someone would strongly disagree, or you can share your own opinion. Okay. Well, I can see how someone would disagree, because... But, but I believe that love, this act of the will, comes first, and then a lot of times the feeling of love will come. You know if you're doing something good for somebody. Yeah. And... When somebody does something good for you, you can say, okay, they're loving me, they're not having any emotion about it, but you know if it's something that they, like they didn't have to do or it's from God, yeah. that um, they can create emotion, but it's not the emotion itself that triggers the, yeah. the, the good emotion. The decision comes first, the decision to act. And sometimes, if we're lucky, the emotion follows. And I had to ask that question a lot, as a, especially as a new Christian, because um, it's not normal. I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the non, the secular world, yeah. pretty much doesn't. I don't think they get that. I think they're pretty much all. You know, love is a, it's a feeling. It's all emotions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I remember um, before I studied abroad in London, I was going there with my best friend. We were going to be roommates, and right before we left, my best friend broke up with me. She was like, "I, you, you suffocate me." I don't, I don't, I don't really enjoy hanging out with you. I was like, oh, you told me we were best friends. And he was like, yeah, I told you that because that's what I knew you wanted to hear. And I was like, oh my gosh. We were in the same small group, the same small group. I, was like, I know, right? It's so harsh. Um, and so our small group sat us down and they were like, you guys kind of have to figure this out. Like you're going, you're going to room together in a foreign country. You have to figure this out. And so we were like, Wah. so we went to this foreign country and, and I was so hurt by her that I, re- I, I really was so, so, so angry at her. And everything she did annoyed me. She was late all the time. That annoyed me. She wouldn't read the Shakespeare plays when we were going to see the Shakespeare show. And she wouldn't even let me tell her the story of the Shakespeare play so that she would be prepared because she didn't want a plot spoiler. Experience Shakespeare. I was just so, everything she did annoyed me. Finally, I, I think God must have put this on my heart. Finally, God told me, you have to love her first, regardless of what your feelings are. And so I very, very grudgingly made her coffee and brought it to her in the morning and was like, good morning. And I very, very gradually left her a note of encouragement, like a Bible verse, like, I hope you have a good day. And what was amazing about that was that it changed my mind from waiting for her to love me, and it changed my mind into thinking, how does Caroline need to be loved? And then she, maybe at the same time, thank you God, started doing the same exact thing to me, but then when I would find a note on my pillow from Caroline, I wasn't thinking like, well, it's about freaking time. Or like, well, great that you can say this now after telling me I suffocated you. You know, like I wasn't thinking of that. I was, I was in a posture of like, how can I love Caroline? And then I found this and I was like, whoa, that was really great of her to do that. 
So I think when we love first, there is a potent change that happens. Let's go to the next one. Statement two, go ahead and move yourself. Uh, another really interesting kind of concept related to this. When you behave as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. Okay, so we're kind of roughly the same place where we were, okay? Um, why would you agree or disagree with this? If you've still got thoughts stewing over the last statement, feel free to share those too. I guess actually there's something I want to share that I think is a little bit more about the previous one. Yeah. I think I was I was one of the well okay this person agreed but I was one of the people who put this agreed. I love it. Thank um, you. Thanks for your honesty. Cool. Um, and I honestly I'm not really sure that I necessarily disagree with it per se, but I think that what people do with this sometimes is not very honest with themselves. Like I think that some this idea that like. Love doesn't have to mean feeling any particular way. It's kind of an act of the, like, you know, really wanting someone's good and, like, you know, just kind of an act of the will. I think that sometimes people kind of reduce this to really concrete actions. Like, well, I didn't, like, punch them huh. and I made them food. Okay. And, like, I don't, like, actively say mean things to them. Yeah. You know, and I, I want them to succeed in life and have a nice life. Therefore, I love them. <laughs> Whereas anyone looking, it's plain to see you loathe and despise them and uh -huh. never treat them with grace or charity. Um, and like I don't know, I um, uh, there's uh, there's some people in my my work who and some like flame war on some department like uh, forum of teaching, and there's this one guy. There's a couple of guys, honestly, who are like really have it seems like a bad attitude towards the students that boils down to I'm kind of a hard like harsh teacher, um, but I do it for their good because I like them. And gosh darn it, why can't they see that? And they wish me ill. And like these kids are so immature, and I hate them. Like, I mean, they never quite put in the, and I hate them, but like, it's kind of like saying, I like them, I care for them, I'm only doing this because I care for them, but you can just tell from the way they write about them that they have like no positive feelings towards yeah. these students. Yeah. So I kind of feel like, it's not like maybe emotion, but there kind of has to be an investment of the heart. You yeah. know, it's not just kind of deciding to make people food or something. Yeah. So, I don't Anyways, I spoke my piece. That's a really, I uh, thank you for that. Um, anybody want to respond to that? I think for like, Susie and I, uh, we've been married uh, almost 25 years. And so the feeling, like, how we feel about each other yeah. has changed a lot over those 25 years. Mm -hmm. Kind of uh, peaks and valleys, and I do enough stupid things where her feeling of love towards me is going to fade. These kinds of things, but um, when I read when I read those chapter, it was more of um, this this love in a Christian sense is about commitment. Susie mm -hmm. is uh, she and I are bound together. We are yeah. one, yeah. and so we are committed to each other. And so our love is not about uh, feelings that come and go and wax and wane and change and evolve and all of these things, but our Christian love for each other is, is just the commitment. Yeah. We are together forever. Yeah. So that, that, that's how I interpreted that chapter and yeah. what he was saying. And I saw it through the lens of Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Valerie. Yeah. Me too. I, I'm unable, I was unable to love God when I came to faith. I had no love. And I had not no knowledge of loving God or how that that word wasn't a part of my life. Huh. He taught me through him loving me and his mercy 
then later I was able to say, I love God. Mm. Thank you, God. Yeah. I had none of that of my own in the beginning. Mm. So, and now, too, with relationships, I have to have an act of the will to surrender when I'm really angry. Yeah. Or I'm not going to have love. Yeah. You know, so it can't be based on those emotions. But somebody, I've got to disagree here. Yeah. Not me, but maybe it's like someone thinks if I don't feel love, therefore I don't love God because I don't feel it. But when you, uh, you don't always feel that. Yeah. But if you have that, that will to stick with it and follow God, even if you don't feel as close, mm-hmm. you don't come back. When I think this is kind of circling back to what you were sharing, when I think this is, you know, Lewis talks about these chapters as distinct things, but so many of them go together. I remember being a student teacher and at an alternative school. The kids were really struggling. I was doing everything I could to help them, and they were rude and mean and not failing, you know, failing their work. And there was one morning where I, on my way to school, I said, God, help me to see these kids as you see them. And I'm going to love them the way that you love them. And, and it was so different that day. Like, there was so much more understanding of who these kids might be. And there was insight about how to speak into their lives that I hadn't had before. And rather than feeling like adversaries, it just it changed things. There was something different. Um, and so I kind of wonder if some of these colleagues, you know, if there is the spirit at work, how does that change their experience of some of these kids? Um, because we can't, you know, we can't, love unless unless there is real love at work within us, right? Yeah, Tom. I like the word proximity to describe this. Yeah. And it is an act of will to put mm. ourselves in proximity to others. Mm. But I agree that you know, the Holy Spirit moves us to, to love others. Yeah. So it's it's both love is an emotion that God engendered. Yes. But on the other hand, we have to have the will to go to be close enough to people yeah. to learn to love them. Yeah. And I feel like Dan's comment, you know, the whole history of a marriage mm-hmm. is so empowering for the marriage. Mm-hmm. The fact that you experience things together. Yeah. But that's true of any kind of relationship with other people. Yeah. You really need to have that, that history. Uh, history, that kind of connection. and. We're not going to, you know, particularly in terms of uh, our understanding of the other. Yeah. You can't have that understanding without that proximity. Yeah. 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 I think these are great comments, you guys. I want to. I want to keep going. Let's let's keep going. Thank you for for continuing to participate. Let's keep let's keep moving. Okay. Um, let's talk about this idea of hope, so this, this idea that we're made for another world. Most people, if they really look into their hearts, will see that they want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. Statement three, go ahead and rearrange yourselves accordingly. Okay. Do we agree with John Mayer or not? <laughs> uh, okay. Most people agree. Some people disagree. The cheesy way of putting this is there's a God-shaped hole in all of us, right? Let's talk about this idea. Why would someone agree with this or disagree? I want to know what's cheesy about it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just because like, the song sounds kind of cheesy. Okay. There's a God-shaped oh, okay. hole in all of us. So what shape is God? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Obviously, it's fear. Yeah. 
goes on to say, I've got wealth, I've got women, I've got, I've got wisdom, I've got everything. It's all meaningless. Um, like the, here's what man's true aim is. It's to live for God and to trust, to trust in that hope. Dan, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I, you know, it's a generational thing, but YouTube's, uh, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Yes, thank it's you. Maybe yeah. more acceptable. <laughs> 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 yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, Valerie. And I have this longing. Of course, I've, I have, you know, gone through a lot in my life. But I have this longing that's not filled in this earth because it's a longing for the perfection that we don't have. Yeah. The standards and all the righteousness that God calls us to, the love and all the longing short of the pain and the suffering in this world. There is a longing for something more. Yeah. And that's that's where we're not going to have the suffering. We're not going to have the tears anymore. Yeah. Yeah, why wouldn't, like, if there wasn't a, a better world, why wouldn't we all just naturally be more cynical? You know, this is all we can expect. And yet, because we grieve at injustice, because we grieve when things are painful, there's something in us that's saying it's not meant to be this way. You know, and if we look at the story of creation, that's true. Our world has fallen from what it was meant to be. Okay, let's, yeah, hello. I personally, I agree with this one, and this person does too, but I was trying to think of who would disagree. I can picture people that are going through really tough times, people that sort of have their basic needs mm -hmm. fulfilled. Yeah. And that that's what that's what, those are the things that they look, yeah. that they want, yeah. and they're not, they're in this world, those things that they deeply need. Yes. And so it would be hard for them to think that those things are not in this world. Yeah. And I think Jesus agrees with that. I think that's why Jesus did heal people's infirmities and why he gave them food when they were hungry and why he tells us, feed my sheep. If you love me, take care of my people. Feed my sheep. 
I think that's really, really important. And I think there's a huge responsibility placed on us as Christians to tend to those needs while, while pointing them towards the other world, right? Because that's what Jesus did. He healed their immediate needs, and then he forgave them on a spiritual level. It was both. So thank you for bringing that up. That's a really important point. Valerie? To piggyback on him, I'm wondering if non-believers don't have that longing for more. And only Christians do because if the truth has been revealed to them. Well, and I think one of the reasons why I brought up John Mayer is because I don't think he's a believer. Um, I, I work with a lot of authors in my job that are um, writing books on you know, self-fulfillment, on well-being, and it's interesting how many of them, even when they're not believers, they arrive at something that is in line with Christ's teachings, like service. You know, you will experience something so much more fulfilling when you serve other people. Um, or like they, they talk about having a spiritual life and how important that is. And I'm like, do you mean like God? And they're like, well, any sort of a higher power, any, you know, the universe, energies, anything that is beyond yourself. They're talking about our need for God, you know. So it, it is, I mean, I've been impressed and surprised by how often it comes up even with non-believers. Yeah. Okay, let's keep, Gwen, are you raising your hand? Stretch it. Okay. Let's, let's get a few more. Uh, okay, we just kind of talked about this, so I'm going to keep us going. Uh, statement five, faith is the art of holding on to things your faith has, your reason is once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Okay, let's, let's rearrange ourselves according to statement five. Where does your map tell you you should go? Not a lot of movement today. These are pretty stationary. <laughs> okay, why, why would we disagree or agree? we think about this nearly as often as we should because we start thinking if we're feeling doubt game's up that's not what C.S. Lewis says he says no it's, of course you're going to have doubts hang on to your faith anyway I'm, I'm also oh sorry yeah I, I'm also just not not sure that, that I would like I don't know if, if most people or if I would like kind of, kind of conceptualize the, the order in this way like you figure out something with your reason. You believe it with your brain, yeah. and you believe it to be true for reasonable reasons that you can explain. Yeah. And then the storms of life come, and you're tempted by, you know, like hamburgers and sexual <laughs> temptation or whatever. And then you have to like use your will to like hold on yeah. to that reasonable thing that you thought of in your brain. Like yeah. I'm not, especially with religious faith, I don't know that that's necessarily like how it works for most people. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't have like a coherent like counterpoint, but I think I might have put this. Well, and I think, I think it's valid because some people actually come to faith through a very emotional experience um, that doesn't make a whole lot of reasonable sense, right? C.S. Lewis did reason his way into faith. So this might actually betray his own journey of faith. Um, but, but there's that phrase, don't doubt in the dark what you knew in the light, right? I think it's, this, I think it's a similar concept here. Don't, um, don't lose what you knew to be true at one point, even when things get hard. Valerie. And living by faith, not by sight, and I'm not, I'm not supposed to allow my emotions to run my life. If my emotions run my life, I'm gonna roll over everybody and everything. Mm. So it has to be based in faith. Yeah. And then the trials come, like 
like Timpani or or I'm questioning yeah. something, you know, or what would it be like if I didn't and kind of have to hold on to the anchor? Yeah. And the anchor will center me sooner or later. Yeah, yeah. Okay. At the center of our faith is the, the sacrifice of Jesus mm. on the cross, mm -hmm. which actually is a historical fact, mm. uh, seen by many witnesses. So that's it's like an anchor for our yeah. faith. Yeah. It's solid. Yeah. But in those times of doubt, you kind of come back to that question, well, what do I make of Jesus then? Well, I think I think Jesus was still the Son of God. Well, I guess I'm going to keep going. Yeah, letting that be an anchor. Let's. Um, we're at time. Um, I. I was curious uh, where people fell on, on these ones. Maybe just a show of hands for statement eight. Who agreed with this? Who has a Who has a piece of paper that says agree for statement eight? God doesn't care about our faith. The only thing God cares about is our good actions. So we have one person agree with that. Okay, interesting. What about this other one? God doesn't care about our actions. The only thing God cares about is our faith. Did anyone agree with that one? Okay, uh, two people. Oh, that's the same one. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No? no okay. No, okay, so one person agreed with that. Okay. Um, I think uh, C.S. Lewis makes the point that they both matter very much, in fact. Um, that it's, that it's, we're kind of in danger we're in danger when we take one at the expense of the other. I don't think I covered what those dangers were. Let me just say that. Good actions are all that matters. Uh, that implies that heaven can be bought. That if you are just good enough, then God has to give you heaven. Okay? That God, in, in essence, can be manipulated by our good actions. Okay? Um, faith is all that matters. Uh, the danger there is that if what you call your faith in Christ does not involve taking the slightest notice of what he says, then it is not faith at all. Okay? So this idea that if we believe in Christ, we will take him at his word, we will trust what he says in, in scripture like Sermon on the Mount, and we will put that faith into action. He says it's important to, to keep them both in mind. Um, let me pray for us to close. Um, Lord God, thank you for your grace. Uh, thank you that we have hope in another world, even if that's really the only thing we can realistically hope for in this world. Thank you that you are a good God. Um, thank you that you have made provision for us when we fail, and that you invite us into your light where we can laugh and say, look at all those things I've done. Look at how saved I am, and look at how saved everyone else is too. What a beautiful thing, Lord. Would you bring us into this place of freedom with one another and in our own souls. In Jesus' name, amen.